So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to get my clock out here so I know where I'm at. Like I said to the kids, um, many people will divide the book of Ephesians into two simple, two simple uh, divisions. Number one, you have chapters one through three, and people say that's the doctrine. That's the teaching of the book of Ephesians. And then as you come into chapter four, Paul begins with, I therefore, right? And we know that word therefore is important as we've seen it other places in scripture because the rest of the book of Ephesians, not just in our text today, but the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to use what Paul taught in chapters one, two, and three uh, to explain the rest of the book. And so we're moving from the doctrine, the teaching of Paul into duty, the Christian life, how we live and how we walk, how we breathe as a Christian. And this is the general pattern throughout the entire New Testament, where we see Paul beginning with theological indicatives. That's truth, that's teaching, that's doctrine. And that always precedes or comes before the ethical imperatives or how we're living our lives. And so as we think about that, we must start tonight, before we dive into what it looks like to walk or live as a Christian, we have to think and remind ourselves of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, I couldn't fit it all on the other side of the whiteboard, so I'm not going to have it on the screen. But just think with me of all the teaching we've had on Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 leading up to this point. God had a plan from before the foundations of the world to gather and unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself under Christ. God shows us in chapter 2 how we were separated and alienated from him, having no hope in this world because our sin has separated us from him. And in his love, God sent his son Jesus that through his death and his resurrection we might have life, we might have peace with one another through faith in him. And so it's only through this gospel that there is hope in this life for us. There's only through the gospel that there's hope in eternity and past this life for us. So we saw at the end of chapter 3 the beautiful prayer of the Apostle Paul as he talks about how our creator is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and all that we think. And Coming off of these truths of the great gospel, the salvation of Jesus Christ, Paul says, I've taught you all these things. You're believing in all these things. Now I need you to act on these things. So this is what you believe, and this is how you are to live. So as we go into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3 tonight, I think what we see is God's twofold strategy for unity within the church. God's twofold strategy within unity of the church. So first, we're going to look at his, our divine calling in verse 1. Our divine calling in verse 1. And then we're going to see in verses 2 and 3, our Christ-like conduct. Let's look at the text and read it before we jump into our divine calling. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we begin with our divine calling here in verse 1. And as we said, Paul begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, if you look back in your text, Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, right? So we know Paul's in prison, and we know he's in prison because of... Now, notice the difference between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The difference between a prisoner for Christ Jesus and a prisoner for who? For the Lord. He intentionally uses a different name... For our Savior here in chapter 4. Why? Think about chapters 1, 2, and 3 talking all about our great salvation. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? He's the anointed one. He's our Messiah. And so Paul is in prison as a result of his teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus being our anointed one, our Messiah. And as we, we move into the gospel urging us on to live and to walk for Christ, he says, I'm, not, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He's identifying Jesus as his Lord. This is not all caps. This isn't Yahweh of the Old Testament um, and, and that the Jews would have um, identified with all caps here in the text, but it is our Lord, our master, our owner. And so he says, Jesus is my Savior, in chapter 3, and Jesus is my master, my owner. He dictates, he determines everything that I do, how I act, how I walk, how I think, how I live my life. And so he says, with all of the doctrine and teaching of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and with Jesus being our Lord and our Savior, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we know what urges, right? This is what, when we as parents, uh, our voice intensity raises with our children. Uh, the volume might raise slightly too. Why? Because we're helping them understand what we're about to say or what we are saying is important. We need to pay attention to it. Um, when I coach my son's soccer team, oftentimes on the sideline as coach, I'll clap really loud, trying to get their attention. Why? I want them to know that what I'm saying is very important for the next few minutes of the game. I need them to do what I'm asking them to do. Can you imagine Paul right here? He, listen up, Christian, because you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, because Christ is your Savior and He is your Lord, Listen up, this is really, really important. He's going to urge us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This idea walk is exactly how you imagine it, just taking one step in front of the other. This is how we live. This is how we act on a daily example, um, as a daily walk with people. Paul uses this word walk four more times in the next few chapters. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. He says to walk in love. As a follower of Jesus, we are called to walk in love, to walk as children of light. Verse chapter 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So as a follower of Jesus, because we've been saved and he is our Lord, he's determining our walk. He says, I urge you to, to walk, to live in a manner worthy of our calling 
of which we've been called, or to which we've been called. He, he uses this double word, calling. It's kind of an awkward way to phrase it. When we think of our calling in life, oftentimes we go straight to our careers. Um, you'll talk to someone, and you'll ask them about their job or their career, and you ask them how they like it, and they, say, they might say, I like it okay, but it's not, my, it's not my calling. It's not what I'm called to do. And so Paul here is saying, let me tell you, now that you are saved, what your calling is. You're going to walk according to this calling, and this calling is no less than what I've laid out in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, right? Paul goes back to when he talked about the Ephesians' calling by God, and he says that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The calling to which we've been called is no less than the gospel call itself, right? And he's saying, live up to, live worthy of the gospel, of your salvation. Imagine that high calling of God that the creator of the universe would call you, would save you, would rescue you and I. And now, as our Lord and our Master, He says, I am going to show you what this calling looks like and how to live. He can set no greater motivation to live for Christ in the gospel. There's nothing higher than this. So the first strategy of God for unity within the body is this gathering of believers, this calling on our lives. And at the moment of salvation, as a moment of salvation, God brings us into his church. We become members of his body. But then he goes on and he says that not only part of his strategy for unity is our divine calling, but it's also our Christ-like conduct. Ephesians chapter 4, let's look at verse 2 and 3. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. I love how clear Paul is here when he says to walk worthy of your calling. It's easy to say, what does that look like? What is that? I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to obey. And Paul says, okay, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And he, he says, with all humility and gentleness. You kind of have a list, right? Patience. Some people like to divide patience and bearing with one another in love. But for tonight, we're going to combine them. This idea of patience and forbearance. So we're going to combine them. So we have one, two, three. And then, and then we're going to call this diligence in a little bit. Uh, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So let's think about our calling... As followers of Jesus, when he says, in all humility, lowliness of mind. Maybe you've heard of humility described as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? And that's a good definition. Uh, one commentator that I read says this, and I think I had this on the screen. Humility means to see yourself as God sees you with infinite and inherent value, but with no more value than anyone else. 
accepting God as the authority over your life and to order your life in such a way as to serve God by serving others. Think about that idea of humility. Serve God by serving others. Now, this would have been an absolute shock to the hearers and the listeners that Paul was talking to. To the Roman mind and the Greek mind, the idea of lowliness of mind, the idea of humility, would have been only attached to that of a slave or a prisoner. So they would not have viewed humility as we do today in the church. We don't, I mean, even in our culture today, right? Humility is not one of those sought-after traits. So to the Greek and the Roman mind, they would have said that this was a negative character trait for anyone. And yet, Paul's talking about this high calling to which we've been called. And he begins it by saying, to live according to this high calling, we must walk in humility, in all humility. But yet to them, they're thinking only the self-sufficient, only the self-assured, the self-promoting. They're the only ones that have dignity in this life. Maybe some of you have bought into the thinking of our world. How many of you have heard the statement that says, you can't help others until you first, what? Help yourself. How easy, how, how good does that sound, right? Oh yes, I need to care for myself before I can care for others. That is the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here. He says to walk worthy of calling is to walk in humility. He, humility is not serving self. There is nowhere in the New Testament you'll see that line of thought anywhere. In fact, when we think about all the, these things leading up to the idea of unity, this is why it's God's strategy for unity, right? Humility and unity are regularly attached throughout the New Testament. Look at these verses as I read them in Romans chapter 12. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride, the opposite of humility. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, unity, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Philippians chapter 2, 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. One more in Colossians chapter 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, before I keep reading, listen to how similar this sounds to our text tonight. Put on, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So as we think of our Christ-like conduct leading to unity, it begins with humility. And Paul goes on and says, next is gentleness or meekness. Uh, the idea of having power and keeping it under control. 
Honestly, it's the humility that gives us the ability to, to do this. And though you could use a lot of different examples on what meekness is, I think the example of Christ is the greatest example and idea that we have of someone who has all power. He's all-powerful. He is God. And yet, humbled himself to come to the earth. And in doing so, what did he do? He clothed himself in meekness and in gentleness. You might be familiar with Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's actually an entire book recently re, uh, written uh, about Christ being gentle and lowly. It's an excellent book. But Jesus is the perfect example of meekness and gentleness. Think about his interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they're constantly trying to get Jesus to blow up and antagonizing him. Think about even more so, especially this week, Jesus' road to suffering. The Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross. While he's being beaten and mocked and made fun of, and Jesus has all power and all authority and all ability to end it instantly, and yet he never retaliates. He never puts a stop to it. Why? Because he is meek. He is gentle. Ultimately, he did so for you and I. He did so so that we might have a relationship with God the Father once again. So when you think of disunity in the body of Christ, disunity in your family, is it not a result of a lack of humility that has led someone to a lack of gentleness or meekness and so that they are determined to gain power or influence over somebody else, to get their way, to get what they want, you see, God's strategy for unity in the church begins with humility, and we add to that gentleness or meekness, and then he says, patience, bearing with one another in love. So think of patience as, think of patience as believing that God's timetable is good all the time, no matter what right? So this is the idea of patience. I am going to wait on the Lord. He is in control of all things. And then you think of bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another. This is the idea of forbearance we see, and your translation might even have forbearance there, is being patient with others while being provoked. Being patient with others while being provoked. And we do this with love towards one another. Man, this is really easy to read and say and much more difficult to live out, isn't it? Hey, great, I'm going to be patient. God, give me patience and hurry, <laughs> right? I need it now. And, and God, I'm going to be patient with all people until that one person walks in the door and takes my seat in church, right? Um, I can be patient with people until... I'm not treated the way I think I should be treated. Until they, they look past you and they don't ask you to be a part of that committee to help serve in that area. I, I can be patient with someone as long as they, the church sings the songs that I think we should be singing and the way that we should be singing them. No one here has that opinion, do they? No. We can be patient 
as long as we don't get invited to somebody's house. And the second we get looked over, right? And, and these things aren't even sins against us. And yet how much do we struggle to forbear with one another in loving ways within the body of Christ? Do we care more about the unity of the church or getting our desires and our ways in this body? Do we care enough to be slighted, to keep our power under control, to be hurt, to be provoked, and yet respond in love, in kindness towards one another? The final imperative we see here, I've called diligence, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, excited. Eager to maintain is a present, active participle, right? It's an ongoing action. It means that we are called in the body of Christ to constantly be endeavoring to maintain unity with one another. This is a Christ-like action. This is what we're called to do. But notice a very important word here, that we're eager to what? Maintain. We're never called to create unity. We can't create unity. Because we're maintaining the unity of, prepositional phrase, of who? The Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that brings unity to all of us. As a follower of Jesus, as a group of followers of Jesus, we are united together. We have the same Spirit indwelling all of us. We all have the same uniform, right? The same spirit. So we are unified based on the spirit. And yet our command, our imperative tonight, is that we would be diligent to maintain this unity through all those things that we've been looking at before. The spirit of God binds together the most un likely group of people, does it not? Look around the room tonight. There's no earthly reason, human reason, apart from Christ, why we should all be here together, enjoying our time together, singing together, praying for one another, looking forward to small groups to interact and spend time together. In, in Paul's day, this was primarily a difficult task for what? Jew and Gentile, right? Listen to Ephesians 2, which we've already learned about what Christ has done. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He broke down a dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. Jesus Christ is able to supernaturally bring us together, to unify us in the bond of peace. 
There is no peace apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you look across the auditorium, we have blue collar and white collar. We have the educated, the less educated. We have young, we have old. We have many different cultural and ethnic groups in our church. We have people from Michigan in our church and people from Florida in our church. (laughs) We have singles. We have newly married. We have married with kids. We have divorced. We have single parents. We have empty nesters. What do we have in common? Only Christ, right? I mean, everyone in my small group doesn't love soccer, right? As much as I love the sport of soccer and the game of soccer, not everyone in my small group does. In fact, in my small group, we have all of those that I just mentioned. And yet, we can't wait for Wednesday nights usually. I say usually because because with four kids, the ages that we have, sometimes it's really hard to get there, right? But we look forward to this bond of peace that we've been given in the Spirit. That all goes back to our great salvation that Paul's been talking about throughout the book of Ephesians. So that means that as each one of us submit to Christ as our Lord, and as each one of us submit to the Spirit in our life, He leads us, He leads us to walk like a Christian worthy of our call. So that when the world looks into Hampton Park Baptist Church, we are easily identified. Our identity is in Christ because we are a humble people. We put the needs of everyone else ahead of ourselves. We are a meek and gentle people. We don't need to be self-serving. We are patient with one another in our homes so that our children experience this with mom and dad and they don't just experience at church, they see it every day. But we're not just patient because we are just a lot of sinners in a room together tonight. And some of you are having a great week and some of you are having one of the hardest weeks of your life. Those of us who are having a great week need to bear with one another in love. We hurt with those who hurt. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And each day, this is hard work. We are eager to maintain. We don't create it. We're eager to maintain. This is is work. It takes effort on our behalf. It takes intentionality on our behalf. We're eager to maintain the unity that we all have together because we recognize that unity is from the Spirit of God. And he brings peace to this body because the Spirit is at work in each one of us. I love what one 17th century German theologian said about this text. He said, unity in the essentials, liberty in incidentals, and in all things, charity. Unity in doctrine, in truth, in our great salvation, We're not going to budge on those. We are unified on those things. But liberty in the incidentals, right? And in all things charity, in all things love, we love one another because of the Spirit of God and the work that He's done with us. So, brothers and sisters, 
as we scatter this week, as we go to our homes tonight, as we interact with one another, remember God's strategy for unity for us. Remember your divine calling. God has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He's given you the power of his spirit in you. And so with that power, we live out the gospel with our Christ-like conduct as we walk in humility and gentleness and patience. And we diligently, diligently work to maintain the unity that each one of us have been given in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight because we recognize that apart from you, we are alienated, we are in darkness, and we are separated from you. God, we praise you tonight for the gift of your salvation through Jesus Christ. God, we need you this week to strengthen us in humility and in gentleness and in patience with one another. We need you to help us as we seek to maintain the unity that you've already provided in Christ through your Spirit. So God, we praise you for that tonight. God, help us to live faithful lives to you. Help us to serve you this week. And God, we just praise you and thank you for your love for us and your grace that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.